Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with a very special edition of the Getting Over Professional Wrestling Podcast. This is the very first time that we here on Getting Over are really going to sit down and take a long, hard look at New Japan Pro Wrestling, and we're going to be doing it coming right out of Wrestle Kingdom 15, the company's biggest pay-per-view of the year. It has been a very interesting last 12 months or so in my personal NJPW fandom because, look, you know, we're candid on this show, right? I was way into NJPW for a number of years recently, primarily during this extended Kenny Omega run along with uh, Wrestle Kingdom 14 last year, which did not feature Kenny Omega, but featured numerous other big-time stars and big-time matches. But through the pandemic, um, work being extremely busy, New Japan itself, for some of the shows that it did put on ahead of the G1 Climax, being very disappointing. Uh, some of the clips I saw and some of the individual matches that I saw, I kind of fell out of love a little bit with New Japan. I did not watch the G1 this year for the first time in, I believe, four or five years. It felt weird over the summer, but it's a huge time suck. And the truth of the matter is I just didn't have it. I didn't have the time to sit and watch it. Um, I, I saw a couple of matches over the course of the year, probably three or four. And while the high quality wrestling was still there, there just wasn't necessarily much truly drawing me in. But I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and watch Wrestle Kingdom 15 in its entirety. And I'm going to do an instant analysis for the show and see what happens. See if New Japan brings me back. And spoiler alert, I'm back. Uh, Wrestle Kingdom 15, night one, night two, fantastic shows. They were both top heavy, as is to be expected when you take a single card and stretch it over two nights. Very similar to what happened at WrestleMania 36 this past year. I would say there were five matches uh, combined across both shows that really got me, really got the juices flowing. But nevertheless, it was a good show that we are going to talk about momentarily on this podcast. Before we get to that, you know how this works. A reminder to follow us on Twitter at Getting Over. Cast. We release every episode first on Twitter. We let you know as soon as it's live. We talk about wrestling all week. We share videos and gifts and make jokes and retweet people. I mean, it's good. We don't tweet too much. We tweet just enough. And the primary purpose of the account is to let you know about this show. We also put polls out there uh, ahead of pay-per-views, after pay-per-views, so we can gauge your reaction and use it as content on the show. So do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And folks, you know what else you need to do. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for me for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Tell your gardener, tell your teachers, tell your friends, your neighbors, your parents, uh, your kids, if you're <laughs> if you're an adult who has children, uh, you know, if you are a fan of professional wrestling, let people know they need to listen to this podcast. I greatly appreciate it. But that's it. Let's move on. Let's talk New Japan Pro Wrestling, Wrestle Kingdom 15. As I said, 
two shows, night two for me, a little bit more loaded than night one, but New Japan did a good job of kind of breaking up the big time matches across both shows. But the main storyline, the way we're going to start is by talking about the IWGP Heavyweight and Intercontinental Championship matches. You had Tetsuya Naito against challenger Kota Ibushi on night one, and the winner of that match was going to go on to night two to face Jay White. So right there, just knowing that's what's booked, I'm already excited, but what they delivered to us was truly fantastic. So the way we're going to break this down is we're going to start with this main event. We'll talk about night one, we'll talk about night two, and then I'm just going to kind of pick and choose some of the other matches I want to talk about over uh, over both nights of the show. The, the truth is, the bottom half of both cards, I'm not going to talk about. They The matches weren't particularly good. They I was wa- mostly watching them in the background, and from a storyline standpoint, they didn't matter much to me. So I'm going to stick to what mattered much to me, because guess what? This is the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, hosted by the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and that's how things work on this show. So as I said, we're going to start with night one, Tetsuya Naito defending against Kota Ibushi. The storyline going in here is that Ibushi won the G1, but lost his briefcase to Jay White the first time that's ever happened. So Naito, out of, I guess, the goodness of his heart, granted Ibushi a title match anyway. The titles, by the way, never got split throughout this entire year after Naito won both of them last year, even though he lost both of them to Evil. Remember I mentioned NGPW took a little downturn? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, And then Naito won them back. So my concern entering this match is that NJPW just doesn't seem to really want to back Naito as the top guy, even though we as Naito fans, and I count myself among them, waited so long for him to get that crowning moment. By the time he finally did, three months later, there was a pandemic. They took the title off of him. They gave it back to him and this whole year was kind of a wasted year. So just, it's another instance of him being the B-side. They do not see Naito as an A-side and that was proven, in my opinion, once again here. As far as the match goes, it was great. Naito hit a sick neck breaker off the ring apron, concentrated on that, but you'd think he'd know by now that Abushi's neck is indestructible, right? Abushi delivered an insane Hurricanrana counter off the apron outside. Naito came back with an avalanche poison Rana and Destino, but only for a 2.9. Ibushi eventually came back with a Kamagoye for a 2.9. He missed that corkscrew 6.30 cent on he does, and Naito hit another Destino, but only got a near fall. So we saw another Kamagoye for a 2.9. Ibushi started getting really frustrated and incensed that Naito kept kicking out. So he exposed his knee to try again, but Naito countered with a brain buster. Ibushi stopped the Destino, maintained risk control, hit a V-trigger with an homage to Kenny Omega, followed that by a third Kamagoye, and finally won the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, and he already had previously won the Intercontinental Championship. Abushi, like three minutes later, went back to cover Naito because he didn't realize he had already won. I thought that was a nice, cool moment right there. When Red Shoes finally confirmed it, you saw Abushi break down. You could really feel the emotion there. Naito took the titles away from Red Shoes. He presented them to Ibushi and then raised his hand. I thought this was an incredible match and a fantastic post-match as well. It was really emotional. My two favorite guys in NJPW going at it straight for 30 minutes, probably around like 4.5 stars. I think it was the fourth best match or third best match on both shows. And, And that sounds like it's like, 
an insult. It's not. Yeah, I'm going to explain why uh, that's the case. Probably my third favorite match, I would say, across both shows. Abushi being crowned this way felt to me like a coronation. Almost like he's going to be the next ace whenever Hiroshi Tanahashi hangs it up. I definitely want to see this match again. I, I will take Naito and Abushi as many times as they will give it to me. Abushi though, didn't get long to celebrate before Jay White came down, said his celebration would only last one night before White pulled him down and took both of the titles. Abushi came back, said he would become a god after beating White on night two. So let's move right into that. IWGP heavyweight and intercontinental titles on the line, back-to-back nights, Kota Abushi going in as the new champion against Jay White. So White got this match because he took the G1 Climax briefcase from Abushi. As I said, the first person ever to do that. Abushi came into this as the first ultimate Grand Slam winner in NJPW history. You're talking all the special events, all the titles. Abushi's basically won almost all of them. It's extremely impressive. White was looking to be the first man to ever win a main event in the Tokyo Dome at Wrestle Kingdom on his first try. NJPW did a great job building up these two major matches, and Abushi entering this as champ was definitely the right call. After initially being sour on Jay White, long-term listeners will know, when he first turned and became the Switchblade and they started featuring him, I was not at all sold. Brian Campbell, my ho- the host of the show I was on at the time, he wasn't sold either. But over the last couple of years, man, Jay White has really come into his own. He kind of did in 2019 a little bit, but I didn't really get to see him in 2020 develop this character. But now I can see the confidence he's gained, the look, just everything about Jay White screams star to me. He would be a star. He would be a main eventer, in my opinion, in AEW, in WWE, really anywhere in the world. That's how good I think Jay White has become right now. He's he's also really honed his look, which I think has done you know, serviceable for him. Uh, White spent a lot of time in the match wearing down Ibushi only to get leveled by a bunch of big kicks and some big moves like a standing moonsault, a snapdragon, and a cradle tombstone. White hit a Uranagi, but Ibushi came back with Bomaye for a long two. Red Shoes caught White using the ropes as leverage for a pin, so he tried to wear down Ibushi's leg with a couple like inverted dragon screws and a cool leg lock, and he used that a lot throughout the match. They came to blows, and Ibushi just kind of stood there like a statue. No selling every strike as he started literally kicking White's ass. I I laughed out loud when he was doing that because I saw it happening on TV and I said out loud to myself, because I'm by myself here, uh, (laughs) he's kicking his ass. He's actually kicking his ass. It's funny. And then Kevin Kelly on commentary said he's literally kicking his ass. So I just thought it was kind of cool that all of that happened at the same time. White then seemed to surrender in the middle of the ring, asking Ibushi to pin him. And he was incensed, he being Ibushi, by the cowardice. So he started to pound on White. Red Shoes tried to pull Ibushi off, but he shoved him. So White capitalized with a low blow. I've never really seen a spot like that before where the guy just completely gives up, puts his shoulders on the mat and says, pin me, and it's all a bait and switch. So I thought that was very smart, very inventive. And it was perfectly in character for him as well. Uh, White started driving Ibushi between the guardrail and the ring apron over and over again. And every time there was a hit, he was basically saying, fuck you between each one. Uh, I thought that was really funny. And then he basically rammed Ibushi headfirst into the ring post. Ibushi got legitimately dumped on his head twice from deadlift German suplexes. This guy's neck, as I said earlier, it's just indestructible. I don't know what kind of exercises he does, but holy crap. 
Uh, Abushi answered with a German uh, on White over the ring ropes, followed by a last ride for a 2.9. White countered a Kamagoye by literally, and I mean literally, sleeper suplexing Abushi on the top of his head twice. Abushi finally hit Kamagoye for a long two, and then a flying corkscrew 630 sent on for a clear three, only for Gato to pull Red Shoes out of the ring. Abushi leveled Gato with a Kamagoye, then revived Red Shoes, only to eat a Blade Runner and barely kick out at 2.9. Commentary said that that's the first time anyone had ever kicked out of the Blade Runner, but they didn't really sell it well in the moment as if it was a big deal. Uh, if that's the case, they need to have sold that in, in a major way. So the one knock I had on commentary, which I love, I love their commentary. Kevin Kelly does a great job. I didn't feel that moment the way I, I probably should have. Uh, White went back to the leg lock. Abushi sold the leg after reaching the ropes. Abushi's V-trigger was caught and countered into a regal plex for a long two, then a brain buster. White called for the Blade Runner, but Abushi countered into the V-trigger. He then baited White into another V-trigger, hit a reverse Kamigoye, exposed his knee for a regular Kamigoye, and got the one, two, three to retain his newly won titles. Abushi celebrated, and White grabbed at the titles on the canvas as Red Shoes was pulling them away. It was an incredible shot, a very WWE type of camera work to get that after the match. Uh, And WWE doesn't really even do anything like that when you get into a post-match situation. But I thought that was great. White kept trying to weakly go after Ibushi, like slapping hands at him, showing he wasn't giving up and he just couldn't actually accept that he lost, which played into something that happened later. But this match was absolutely fantastic. Ibushi was unbelievable in these back-to-back main events and he's such a worthy double champion. They said it's the longest match in Tokyo Dome history at over 48 minutes. It didn't really feel like that. White did an incredible job in the match and during the post-match as well. I think it was probably the second best match over both nights with the Naito match being the third best. That's crazy. If I was going into Wrestle Kingdom and you said Abushi and Jay White are going to have a better match than Abushi and Naito, I would have told you you're out of your freaking mind. But that's what happened. This match was better. It was more entertaining. Uh, It told a better story. That was really the key. It told a better story. And for Ibushi to be in the second and third best match over a 48-hour period, really like a 25-hour period (laughs) because the matches were both in the main event. For that to be the case, one dude, two matches of that quality, absolutely insane. You got to consider the storyline of Ibushi losing the G1 briefcase winning the titles anyway, and then retaining them against the guy who had taken the briefcase from him. It was a crowning moment for Ibushi, as I said before. We all thought Kazuchika Okada would follow Tanahashi as the ace of NJPW. But I don't know. I'm starting to feel like it's going to be Ibushi instead. He's a little bit younger. He just has that raw talent and that magnetism. And look, Okada may be the best wrestler in the world, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But Ibushi just has that total package and man, he is the golden star and he comes afterward and he said he's a god and you know what? It's tough to argue that he's not the god of wrestling right now considering what he accomplished over these two nights. But as I said, White really impressed me throughout this match and then he somehow took things up a notch in his press conference. He cut a 10-minute extemporaneous promo and he created some intrigue screaming about sacrificing everything for nothing during a global pandemic. Why was he working so hard if it wasn't going to matter? He also said that his time might be better spent someplace else after New Year's Dash 
that's it, is what he said. So people started speculating about, is he going to go to AEW? Is he going to go to WWE? Or is this just a storyline? For me right now, it seems like it's just a storyline. I believe he's under contract. I don't see why they'd let him go. My guess is he would just take a significant amount of time off and then maybe come back um, at Dominion or right ahead of Dominion to build a match for that. I don't think he would challenge Ibushi right away for the next major pay-per-view. I don't think they normally do that, but it would be interesting if he did, or maybe he went after a different title. Maybe Ibushi vacates the Intercontinental Championship and White challenges for that. I don't know what they're going to do with him, but the press conference that he gave was truly incredible, sold this character, just great stuff from Jay White, Kota Ibushi. And look, I guess by nature of this, am I kind of you know, not burying, but am I kind of forgetting about Tetsuya Naito? A little bit, but that's what happened. That's how this played out. I don't know what Naito's going to do now. We waited all this time for him to reach the top of the mountain. And now we're sitting here like, well, what are they going to do with Naito? That's probably a question for another day. Let's now talk about the best match of both nights, at least in my opinion, Kazuchika Okada against Will Ospreay. This for me was NJPW's best told storyline right now. Osprey turned on Okada, started his own faction at the Empire. Okada stopped using the Rainmaker, had been using this money clip submission. It's kind of like a Cobra clutch. Osprey also added a ton of size and is a lot more deliberate in his moves. He still does the high-flying stuff, but he also increased and improved his ground game. And I, I thought that really showed itself in this match. Osprey nearly destroyed Kevin Kelly uh, early in the match, getting thrown into the barricade. Okada countered the Oz cutter outside the ring with an awesome shotgun dropkick. Business picked up when Osprey flipped out of a German suplex and then caught Okada midair for a powerbomb. Osprey was then standing on a really thin timekeeper's table. He lifted Okada over the barricade and vertical suplexed him through one of the tables, which was like aligned with him perpendicularly. It was crazy that he was able to do that. I audibly gasped. It was an incredible spot. Osprey dragged Okada back in the ring, but a powerbomb and a matchbook cover only resulted in a two. Okada blocked the Stormbreaker and an Oz Cutter on the ring apron, countered with his Tombstone pile driver, and that finally evened the odds, got Okada back into the match. Okada, in succession, hit a money clip Tombstone and another money clip on Osprey, but he wouldn't tap out. He came back with a beautiful Splanish Fi off the top rope. And when you see Osprey and Okada do a Spanish fly from the top rope, and then you think about Keith Lee and Drew McIntyre doing it. It just goes to show how impressive the athleticism of Keith Lee and Drew McIntyre is that they can do that move. It's not as spectacular as when Osprey and Okada do it. It just looks beautiful when they do it. But the fact that those guys of that size can do that same move is just incredible. But in this match, the Spanish fly was awesome. Okada ate an Oz cutter, but kicked out a 2.8. Okada finally decided it's time to go back to the Rainmaker, but he didn't go for a cover. Instead, he basically went back to the money clip again. Osprey then hit Okada's tombstone on him, mocked him by uh, sticking his arms out wide, and hit a rainmaker of his own for a 2.9 in an incredible sequence. Okada came back with the sit-out tombstone and then another rainmaker, and he finally got the 1-2-3 to end a fantastic match. We can only hope that these two are set for a rivalry like Okada had with Kenny Omega. I could watch these guys fight over and over again. Okada again proved he's maybe the best in-ring performer in the entire world. Not just active, potentially ever. 
He's just amazing, man. Every time he does it. This was really close to a five-star match, maybe right at that line, five-star, maybe a little bit over it, 5.25. It was the best match of both shows. And that's not an insult to any other matches because both Ibushi uh, matches, so the one with Naito and the one with White, you're talking right in that same 5, 5.25 type of range, but this was just slightly better. And there's another match I'm going to talk about in a moment that was very close to that level as well. But as I said, this was the best match of both nights, and it's just impressive to me as well. When we talk about Jay White earlier and we talk about Will Ospreay now, it's so impressive how much both of them have upped their levels, not just over the last you know two years or so, but specifically at Wrestle Kingdom, in losses, they both still came out looking better than they did going in. So I have about four matches left to talk about. We'll go through them much quicker. On night two, we had the never open weight championship. Shingo Takagi defeated Jeff Cobb to retain that title. Cobb's strength and athleticism is just so impressive. He had a cradle overhead belly to belly suplex outside the ring, then went for a black tiger bomb off the ring apron, but Shingo got away, hit a tope gongiro instead. Cobb came back and hit a bomb in the ring, but Shingo hit a superplex followed by a wheelbarrow suplex, which is a cool move that should be used more. Cobb then hit a T-bone suplex. Shingo countered Tour of the Islands with Made in Japan got a near fall. Cobb eventually hit Tour of the Islands, but could not cover. Cobb then hit an awesome moonsault power slam, but Shingo came through with a running lariat and Last of the Dragon for the win. This was a barn burner, high intensity. As I said, one of the best matches of the two shows. I'd probably put it fourth overall, but you could totally make a case that it was third or really as high as second. It was an awesome match, really high intensity, a total kick-ass bout. They need to run it back way, way soon. And you don't always get this in NJPW, but it fits. Big meaty man slapping me. (laughs) You usually get that when Tomohiro Ishii is involved, but... I'm going to give him again. Shingo Takagi, Jeff Cobb, no water, no bread. All we got was freaking meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. It was just a barn burner, like I said. This may have been a star-making turn for Cobb in NJPW. He always felt like just a guy before, but he can bang. And we definitely saw it against Shingo. Shingo according to what I hear, had an incredible 2020. So starting 2021 with a bang like this against Cobb, really, really good for him. On night two, we had the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship, Homuro Takahashi defeating uh, Taiji Ishimori for the title. Ishimori did like a 450 onto Takahashi's arm, spent a lot of time working on it. Ishimori got hit with the German suplex off a back handspring, only to come back with a Canadian destroyer. That was a really cool sequence. Takahashi hit a split, spinning flatliner and a time bomb to take the win and the title. This was really well wrestled, but it never captivated me. I see a lot of people that had this among their top three matches. It just didn't get there, but it was a great moment for Takahashi. This is a guy who broke his neck and it was thought he may never wrestle again. He came back a year later and then 14 months after that is now the IWGP junior heavyweight champion and won the title at Wrestle Kingdom. So it's awesome for him. Great to see he was able to make this comeback over the last 26 months or so. But the match itself, it was really good. You put that in any other promotion and it's the match of the week, you know? 
But on this card, on these cards, when I was comparing it to the other ones, it kind of, it fell for me. You know, it, it kind of came in fifth. And I think a lot of people are going to disagree with that, but that's how I felt. Over on night one, we had Hiroshi Tanahashi defeat the great Okan. It was a bit annoying to me to see Tanahashi reduced to a hoss fight. Great Okan and the Mongolian gimmick, it didn't really hit for me. Tanahashi did the twist and shout and a sling blade for a two. Okan tried to hit some move with a claw into a chair. Tanahashi did pop me by making believe he'd use the chair and then kind of like shaking his head and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, feigning out of it. So he hits a dragon suplex instead and high fly flow twice and gets the win relatively easily. It was a mediocre and somewhat disappointing match. I want better for Tanahashi at a big show, but I guess they're trying to push the great Okan. Tanahashi is the equivalent of the John Cena, so maybe they figure just putting him on a big show against a guy like this raises his stock. I don't really know what the ceiling is for great Okan. He doesn't seem to be anything like an Ishii or a Cobb or a Shingo. He just kind of seems to be another guy, but this was also my first time seeing him. So maybe I'll reserve judgment a little bit more and see what happens in the future. And then also we'll wrap up here kind of on night two, we had Sonata defeating Evil one-on-one. Like I said, I haven't watched too much NJPW over the last 12 months, but it feels like Sonata and Evil have both kind of fallen off a bit from where they were at the G1 two years ago. Maybe they were just better together. I don't know. Dick Togo interfered, hit a magic killer with Evil, and he tried to choke Sonata only to later get accidentally bounced off the ring apron by Evil. And he took a huge bump through a table. Like he just crashed and cratered the entire thing. Sonata came back, hit a a pop-up TKO, followed by a moonsault, and he got the clean win. He looked much better through the finish than Evil did throughout the match. And Togo sold the table shot like absolute death. This was disappointing for me. Uh, and it was rough early, but it did pick up towards the finish. So, you know, credit to them for ultimately putting on a, a pretty decent match. Now, after Abushi defeated White in the night two main event, Sonata came out and he basically challenged him for the titles. Abushi didn't exactly accept right away, but said he'd be honored to fight him at some point down the line. It's pretty clear New Japan doesn't know, you know, what their schedule is exactly going to look like going forward. So, They kind of just said, okay, Sonata's the number one contender and we're going to figure out when that match will be eventually. So I think Sonata's a totally fine first contender. You know, I don't think he's someone you'd want Ibushi fighting at Dominion. You want a better match than that. But overall, this was a really impressive show. There were four match of the year contenders at this event alone. Both Ibushi matches, Okada Osprey and Shingo Cobb. It really was that good. As I tape this, We're preparing for NXT New Year's Evil and AEW New Year's Smash. That's a two-week event, New Year's Smash, where we very well may wind up with at least two more match of the year contenders. Then you add in Drew McIntyre and Keith Lee from Raw. Ultimately, I don't think that'll be a match of the year contender, but it was great. We're six days into the damn year. And we're talking about having as many as like seven match of the year contenders by the end of this week. Absolutely insane. Wrestling is crushing it right now. And I, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, am thrilled to be one of the people talking about it every week with you right here on the Getting Over 
Wrestling Podcast. So I do thank you all for listening to this very special edition of Getting Over, where we broke down everything from New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom 15. The Silver King is back in on NJPW. I don't know if I'm going to watch every single event like I was a couple years ago, but if this does get good traffic, if you are actually listening to this, if we get nice fan response here, then maybe I will do these very special New Japan shows every once in a while, once every few months, once every quarter. We'll figure it out. But if you want it, you guys know how it works on getting over. The Silver King will deliver it to you. To thank me for doing that, you can follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, and you can head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let us know how much you love this show. Thank you all for listening. We will be back on Thursday to talk about everything from NXT New Year's Evil and AEW New Year's Smash. With that, the Silver King says goodbye, and I leave you with just three more words. Bye for now.